You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to the Hokey Hangover Podcast. We are three weeks into the 2019 Virginia Tech football season, and boy, have we learned a lot, a lot of things that perhaps we did not want to know. I am Andrew Alex, a talking head at ESPN Radio here in Blacksburg. I'm on from four to six, Monday through, or three to six, check that, Monday through Friday. That's a new change right there. Alongside me, live from another hotel room, a Marriott, Mike McDaniel from the Tech Lunch Pail, among other websites, the Basketball Conference Podcast. That's a podcast that covers all of ACC football. Mike, how's the Midwest treating you? About as well as you can expect, Andrew. Um, the Hokies are two and one. It was ugly, but I mean, we'll get into all this. But a two and one record, I think we'll take it after three weeks, given what happened against Boston College a few weeks back. I think we'll take it. Uh, yeah, and that, that we'll definitely uh, dig deep into it. And one person who I expect to have a slightly pe- more pessimistic view of things, all the way from the seven five seven, the former tech sideline writer, now blogging at the La Blue Review. That's RickyLaBlue.com. The man who they named the website after, Ricky LaBlue. Ricky, how are you? Yeah, those those wonderful people named that website after me. It's almost like the the guy was me, but it's incredible. Uh, no, I think after the first three weeks, we're all feeling pretty hungover about Hokies football. So I think we named the podcast pretty pretty appropriately. Yeah, guys, uh, and, you know, it's hard to find a place to start, Mike. I watched the game from the press box with you. Ricky, I hope you had a beer in hand while you were watching. A tough one. Unfortunately, I didn't, but I could have used one. (laughs) They go into halftime losing 14-3. to They ultimately win by a touchdown, 24-17. to Guys, from both of you, I want one word to describe the Hokies' effort at Lane Stadium on Saturday. Mike, you go first. Inconsistent. Inconsistent. Uh, it's been the story of the season so far, right? Like, it was rough in the opener against Boston College. There were some good points. There were some bad points um, against Old Dominion. We recapped it. It was really good at some portions of it, right? The first half, Tech looked pretty good. Then the second half, the offense kind of went stale and the defense let Old Dominion back into it as they got a little bit more tired. A lot of missed tackles, missed assignments. It just pretty uneven performance. And then, you know, you see what happened on Saturday. Virginia Tech did not play a very good first half. Um, they were moving the football okay. Uh, they turned it over a couple times. It were obviously pretty crucial. The Trey Turner fumble. Um Obviously, the Ryan Willis interception wasn't very good. Uh, Furman capitalizes twice off of those. 
uh, two turnovers. And, you know, on the Virginia Tech side, they had to clean those up, which is exactly what they did in the second half. They came out, they protected the football a lot better, and they outscored Furman uh, by a margin of 21-3 to in the second half and end up um, emerging victorious. It was, it was an ugly game, uh, without a doubt, and it's a game that – you know, for Virginia Tech fans who expect to win, obviously, by more than seven points against an FCS opponent. But, you know, I think all in all, you know, you take two and one with a grain of salt. You know, this Virginia Tech team has obviously a lot of room to improve. you got a lot of young guys on the team that are continuing to get better. And I think from, uh, you know, from a stance of optimism, I think there's a lot to kind of glean from a couple of the more recent performances where you see – you know, a couple halves of football that look pretty darn good. Um, but with that, you see the the bad side of things, too, where it's looked a little bit more uneven. So I think Virginia Tech cleans up the turnovers, a couple of the penalties that they've committed pre-snap, some correctable mistakes. I think that we could be looking at a team that's, you know, overall a lot better than it was last year because, um, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, it's looked better. So I think if you try to find consistency on both sides of the ball here, in the bye week heading into ACC play, I think you feel a lot better about the Hokies' chances here in 2019 than maybe you have at the outset. Ricky, what about you? What are you thinking? Um, Tech's performance against Furman was appalling. Anytime you are down 14-3 to at home versus an FCS program, um, it there's really no other way to describe it in, in other than a, a, a crazy negative fashion. I mean – Tech looked disinterested at times. They played sloppy football. Uh, many players put in maybe their worst performance of the season. Uh, and if it weren't for kind of a an odd penalty um, on an onside kick attempt, Virginia Tech would be extremely close to being tied with Furman in the fourth quarter at home. Um, Tech's effort was not good, obviously. Um, and through three weeks of the season and we'll obviously dig deeper into it for the rest of the pod but through the first three weeks tech just simply does not look like a good football team yeah and i have to agree i have to agree ricky uh i mean i agree with both of you in in different ways the word i would use would be uninspiring you know we talked a lot last week about the state of this team and where they're at and, and Ricky, you tweeted out on Friday night that because obviously on Friday night, the the big surprise in the ACC and really in all of college football was Kansas going and drumming Boston College in Chestnut Hill by a margin of 20 plus points. Now, that's a team that beat Tech, obviously. Everyone listening here knows that. But you said, well, if Tech goes out and beats Furman by 50 points, no one's really going to feel as bad about that because the transit of the transitive property in football it doesn't necessarily exist in a linear margin to the way that you would think it would. But obviously we had an expectation that Furman was a high level FCS team. They were ranked 13th in the FBS. They had nearly beaten a Georgia state team that was coming off a win against Tennessee. I think it was safe to say going in that tech obviously was the more the the superior team in terms of talent. And I think that for many position groups that showed throughout the game, but right from the outset, you start the game with a couple of false start penalties, just the pre-snap penalties, the early turnovers. Tech was nearly doubling almost, if I remember correctly, 
Furman at halftime in yards on the ground and yards in the air, but they just couldn't stop beating themselves. So that's why I say the performance was uninspiring. And I think that if you were in Lane Stadium, right, obviously Tech came through and they won the game. And you got to give them some credit for doing that because I guess in theory they could have lost. Trey Turner came out with a big second half. The defense, you know, for the most part during that game played very well, right? Because when Furman scored, they were essentially set up to score. There were some problems with the triple option at times, but just uninspiring for an offense that really has been unable to get it together for a full four quarters. So, yeah, that's what I would go with. But, you know, back to that. I think both of y'all are being a little a little nice towards towards the team. I mean, it, Fer, Furman's an FCS program. Tech Tech put on one of their worst first half performances that we've seen in the Justin Fuente era, and it I took mean, yeah, definitely one of the it worst. took it took them outscoring a, a FCS team by eighteen points to win that game. And as I mentioned, they were dangerously close to that game being tied. They did. I mean, I I don't I don't think that there's the, the only positives that you can take away from that game were that a few players made enough plays to where there, it wasn't a full on disaster on Saturday. But did, I mean, the counterpoint to that would be was the defense not? I mean, the defense didn't play terrible. I mean, no, that, that, you're right. You're right. You're right. The defense, the didn't, defense play didn't play terrible, but yeah, the offense played terribly. And, the defense and, also didn't play as well as you should against an FCS okay. program. Well, I think let's, is my let's point. Segue that. Obviously, Tech is far from where they want to be right now. Where where do you think is the the problem? Is it play calling? Is it a certain position group? What sticks out to you as the thing holding this tech team back right now? Go ahead, Mike. I mean, I think it's the turnovers. I think the turnovers are the sole reason why Furman was even in the game in the first half. Look, I mean, Furman offensively didn't really do a whole lot in the first half that really stimmied Virginia Tech or surprised them. I mean, I think Furman was given a couple of short fields and then obviously capitalized on a couple of plays. But, you know, if Trey Turner doesn't fumble deep in his own territory, if, you know, Ryan Willis doesn't throw an interception on his half of the 50-yard line, I think we're looking at this thing a little bit differently. I don't think Furman exactly went up and down the field with like 80 and 90-yard drives. I mean, that's not what happened on Saturday. Virginia Tech turned the ball over and gave a good FCS team a a chance with a short field to put the ball in the end zone. Um, I think we look at this thing a little bit differently. If Ryan Willis takes care of the football better, which has obviously been an issue in games one, two, and three, I think he did a better job of it on Saturday. I think he did an even better job of it in week two against Old Dominion. He had that fumble late. He took a pretty good shot. You know, we talked about that at length, but it was obviously much better than his week one performance. You know, I think if Ryan Willis doesn't turn the ball over four times in game one, we're talking about a 3-0 Virginia Tech. I mean, do we feel really good about the way that Virginia Tech has looked through three games? No, certainly not. But I think that some of these issues are correctable. Um, from a turnover standpoint, it hasn't been very good. Obviously, Virginia Tech ranks last now in the FBS in turnover margin. It's not a good look when you're – a power five school from the ACC to rank last in that department. They're not exactly turning teams over on the defensive side of the ball. Although I do think the defense has played better. And I think the offense has looked 
okay at times. I think they just got to find some more consistency. And I think limiting the turnovers will be the big reason why Virginia Tech makes or breaks this season. I think the Hokies have a defense that can certainly, you know, stand up to snuff against some of the teams they're going to play here in the upcoming schedule in the ACC. But I think until the offense stops turning the ball over, they have a pretty a pretty limited ceiling, so to speak. Um, I think this is a team that's going to struggle to find seven or eight wins the way they're turning over the football. Um, I saw some conversation on social media that Tech will be lucky to win a game in the ACC. I think that's a little bit extreme with the way the defense – Well, Georgia Tech still exists, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the defense has played played well enough. I think the offense is good enough when they're at their peak to – not go winless at the ACC. I mean, it's been bad for Virginia Tech. I don't think it's been that bad. Uh, but it'll be interesting. I mean, I think if the Hokies limit the turnovers and find a way to find consistency on that side of the football, I think it'll go a long way because I think overall the defenses look pretty good. Ricky, where are you at? Um, I mean, to me, Ryan Willis is holding this offense back right now. He's His turnover issues are obviously well-documented, and Mike, you touched on that, but I mean, Saturday against Berman, there were just multiple plays. I believe it, I think I counted three where he just had a free rusher come through. And with a young offensive line and a fifth-year senior quarterback, it's your it's your uh, responsibility to make sure that guy's covered. And, and Justin Fuente said so after the game that it's not just on the offensive line that they got stacked four times. I think a lot of it falls on Ryan Willis, and you know his passer his pass efficiency is better than it was last year. Oddly enough, he's got seven TDs and four picks, but I think he's actually been pretty awful so far this year. And I I didn't see any fire out of him in the second half. You notice, and I I wrote about this, but on, in the first drive of the second half, Virginia tech ran the ball six straight plays and scored. They didn't throw the ball once on that drive. And to me, that shows that they knew that they needed to find some offensive production outside of Ryan Willis because he just flat out didn't have it. And I think that's really disconcerting because he gives Tech their, their best ceiling, their highest ceiling with his with his ability, but his floor is really low right now, and they've got to find a way to get him producing better. He's got to notice these blitzes coming off the edge. He's got to make these obvious throws and not miss an open corner route that gets picked off. He's got to take care of the football. He's got to take care of himself and stop getting knocked out of football games. Uh, I think he's really holding his team back, and I'd be curious just to as to see where you guys think he, he is right now in terms of his performance because I just don't see a lot out of him. Well, for me personally, I, I kind of see it in the middle of ground because I do, I do see where, where you're at. With a young offensive line and a fifth-year senior quarterback, there is – you know, uh, not the brunt of the responsibility, but a significant responsibility. At the same time, I saw an offensive line that you look at Silas dancing and who was awful. He was, yeah, he was, he was just straight up getting beat and, and dancing is a good kid. And what's concerning is that at the end of the last season, you know, particularly in the UVA game where he saw a significant time, they were able to muster, you know, 200 plus yards on the ground or whatever it ended up being. The, what appears to be a regression is concerning. The fact that Furman at many times an FCS team was only rushing four guys and, you know, four sacks is a lot to begin with. The fact of the matter is even more than that, you know, Ryan would pull the ball on an RPO and just get drilled. Now, part of that falls on him. Maybe you should have handed the ball off. 
But at the same time, the type of quarterback that he is, and you talk about his potential, right? You talk about his potential. Ryan is the guy that can throw the ball out of Lane Stadium. He, he's an NFL arm in terms of just pure arm strength, maybe not the intangibles otherwise. Yeah. But it, it begs the question, with, with such poor offensive line performance, whether it be maybe to change the play calling or, or change the quarterback altogether and get a more mobile guy in Hendon, I don't know what the answer to that is. But where we're at right now, I'm not here to say that Ryan played a terrible game. I agree with what you said, that some of the offensive line faults are on him. But at the same time, you have to expect an FBS offensive line, a Power 5, a Virginia Tech offensive line, to be able to handle a no-blitz four-man rush from Furman without putting your quarterback two seconds away from getting drilled every time he pulls the ball. That's why he had to turn it to check down Charlie all game. And obviously the premier deep pass that he went for, the pass to, I believe it was Grimsley, yeah. that ended up, I mean, overshot, tipped, picked off. Everyone knows the story. That's obviously a mistake, and that's on Ryan. But the way that the offense w- was moving as a unit throughout the game, combined with the fact that the pre-snap penalties – had Virginia Tech behind the eight ball every time they tried to sign me something in the first half, it was difficult. So I'm not willing to throw the entire thing on Ryan. I mean, you get a 80% completion percentage all game. I'm not willing to pull the rug from under him, but I'd be interesting to see what I'd be interested to see what Mike thinks because uh, in that press box that we were in, there was uh, some mixed opinions from the the group that we were sitting with as to Ryan Willis's role on this team right now. Yeah, I mean, I. We've talked about this a lot, but the offense doesn't fit him. I think that's clear. I think the other thing that's been abundantly clear is that the offensive line can't hold blocks long enough to showcase Ryan Willis's strengths, which is to throw the ball deep down the field. I mean, Virginia Tech had multiple opportunities on Saturday where they could expose some of the Furman defenders deep down the field, and you know Willis just simply didn't have time to throw it deep. Um, I think that was pretty clear that the issue that the Hokies are having right now on the offensive line, we talked about Silas Dancy hasn't been very good. Virginia Tech's been rotating guys in and out of the offensive line because a lot of guys have been hurt. Zachariah Hoy, TJ Jackson, for example, it's just been, it's been very ugly. And then guys who have been slated as starters like Silas Dancy just haven't been all that good. The, the offensive line, in my opinion, is the biggest issue. I mean, I, I, you know, I was in the press conference where Justin Fuente said, look, not all of this is on the offensive line. Ryan Willis didn't necessarily make the right pre-snap reads, and we've seen that as an issue, right? Ryan Willis had that fumble against Boston College that, in my opinion, was totally on him um, pre-snap. He, you know, signaled Deshaun McLeese over the left-hand side of the formation, um, and he was able to block one guy, but not the extra guy who was coming in. So we've seen this be an issue before with Ryan Willis pre-snap, and I do think a lot of this is on the offensive line. I think Virginia Tech – in order for them to be successful throughout the rest of the season, they're going to have to try to establish more of a running game and kind of set up that play action for Ryan Willis. Because right now, I think with how things currently stand with the offensive line and the inconsistency in the running game, I think you're you know, re- requiring a guy like Ryan Willis to be perfect, and he's just not a perfect quarterback. So I think to put him in positions to be successful, he has to be able to have some time to throw down deep down the field. And right now, he just doesn't have that. And I think that's the biggest issue here heading into – what's going to be the fourth game of the year for the Hokies here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And coach Fuente, you know, he said prior to the season that, you know, we, we talked about some of these position groups and specifically referring to the offenses and defensive lines. He said, 
you know, I like the guys we have there, but we're going to have to stay healthy or we're going to get really young really quick. And, you know, with the injury to Hoyt, who is by no means an exceptional center, you know, he, he's not what Brock Hoffman would have been. He, he, you know, he's no Wyatt Teller as an interior defensive lineman, but at least that adds a veteran presence for a guy that as a red shirt junior knows what he's doing and has been there before. You're at times in that game, you know, you're running three freshmen or two two freshmen and a redshirt freshman as your three interior defensive linemen. And, you know, it, it's kind of simple in that you would never really have high expectations for a team that's running three freshman offensive linemen next to each other. So perhaps it's time to, to make some moves. I always wanted to see Silas Dancy at the guard position this year, and I wanted to see Tanuta run that tackle position. Christian Derrishaw has looked fine on the left side. Uh, he is not the issue. He's screwed up. People are going to screw up here and there. Derrishaw is not the issue. But as much as I love Brian Hudson, as much as I love Doug Nestor, those are not guys that you want to be throwing into the fire right now. Those are guys who, in a de- an ideal world, you want to be given that red shirt. Yeah. But unfortunately for Virginia Tech, that is far from the position that they're in right now. Um, I mean, look, the, the offensive line is is at a point where, yes, they're playing a lot of young guys, but um, a lot of the guys that they're playing were, were a little highly recruited, someone like Brian Hudson or, or Luke Tenuta. Tenuta wasn't a four-star guy, but Tenuta had plenty of offers. Brian Hudson's a four-star guy. Doug Nestor's a four-star guy. Uh, these are guys that have a lot of talent, and if you're going to have to rely on them and the season, and I think Vance Weiss knew that, you have to get these guys ready to play. It's as simple as that. And against a an FCS team, they need to be better. Uh, but I, I still think that Ryan Willis has to understand that his offensive line is not going to be perfect because they're so young, and he's going to have to be better. It's just as simple as that. Tech right now has two options. They can either uh, try and, and build an offense that, that prevents Willis from having to make too many reads and prevents the offensive line from having to block very long which is something that I've been advocating for after the first week of the season. And I think they need to build more short throws into the game, take the RPOs out of it because Willis isn't very good at it um, and, and allow Willis to make these shorter throws and get the ball into hands of guys like Trey Turner and James Mitchell, guys who ran for touchdowns on Saturday. Uh, or option two is you build an, an offense almost entirely centered around run pass options. And you go with a guy like Hendon Hooker, who is a lot better at running those types of things. He's a hell of a better athlete. And I think it may take some pressure off of the offensive line. So Tech's at a bit of a crossroads right now offensively. And I think we said this last week, and they've got to start figuring things out. And I think it's on Brad Cornelson at this point as the play caller to adapt to your guys' strengths. And I just have not seen any adaptations so far through three games. Um, So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the blame falls on Willis. A lot of the blame falls on the offensive line. But... The offensive coordinator, Brad Cornelson, I think shoulders a lot of the blame as well. Mike, you've you've written at length about the offensive play calling and the inability to adapt to the talent that the team has and their strengths. Through three games, where are you at with this uh, offensive system and Brad Cornelson? Well, I mean, I'm not one to sit here and defend bad play calling, right? But I think Brad Cornelson, to some degree, he's a bit limited. 
Tenfall because this team is not very good at running the football, right? I mean, it makes it a lot more difficult as a play caller to call plays at work when you're entirely confined to being a one-dimensional attack offensively, which is what Virginia Tech has been for the better part of the first three weeks of the year. You know, Virginia Tech ran the ball much better on Saturday in the second half, and I think because of that, Cornelson was able to have a lot more success in the passing game, calling his plays for Ryan Willis. You know, Willis was a lot better in the second half on Saturday than he was in the first. And I think being able to run the ball with Keyshawn Kane in the second half is no small, you know, no small feat. And that's the reason why they were able to kind of get things on track offensively. You know, I think in order for Virginia Tech to have success throughout the rest of the year, they're going to have to continue to have success and consistency on that side of the football in regards to running the ball. I think if they do that, you know, the passing game will open up a bit more for Ryan Willis. And I think it's been tough sliding for Brad Cornelson to date. I haven't been crazy about the play calling that he's thrown out there, you know, so far, I think he's, you know, run a lot of passing situations and, and passing plays that have not really fit, you know, the offensive line that's out there have not fit the strengths of Ryan Willis have not necessarily fit the strengths of some of the receivers that he's had on the field at a given time, you know, uh, you know, the check downs to running backs, you know, they work sometimes but when you're checking down almost every play, you know, because nothing's open deep down the field. When you have receivers going up against FCS defensive backs in Furman, you expect your receivers to be able to shake open a little bit. And the fact that they weren't able to call any plays deep down the field to any level of success is pretty concerning. Um, I think the one area that did work on Saturday that I would like them to incorporate moving forward is the crossing routes. You know, Ryan Willis is very accurate in the short and intermediate passing game. Um, that interception... Uh, that overthrow interception of Hezekiah Grimsley notwithstanding. Willis has done a pretty good job this year of executing the short and intermediate passing game. They had Caleb Smith running wide open a couple different times on crossing routes there on Saturday. Willis hit him on two different occasions. I think that worked to some level of success. I think, you know, moving forward, Virginia Tech's going to have the athletes on the outside to contend a lot against a lot of these teams in the ACC. Uh, with guys at the receiver position that can win in those types of scenarios. Uh, and I think they should continue to try to exploit that. That's an area that they haven't really gone to a ton that I think that they can continue to go to with some level of success because I think Virginia Tech's receivers will beat a lot of these ACC defensive backs in open space if you get, the, get them in the short and intermediate passing pattern. So that's something I'm going to continue to watch moving forward. They were able to do that on Furman, against Furman on Saturday. Um, here and there, I'd like to see that kind of continue because I do think even if the running game's not going, I do think that short and intermediate passing game can kind of act as a supplement as they try to kind of establish a run here moving forward. Okay, so you talk about that receiving group, Mike, and I mean, one thing that we haven't thought about or haven't really talked about at length yet is the absence through three games of Damon Hazleton. Justin Fuente, you know, it, it seems as if this coaching staff or whoever is uh, in charge here can't really seem to get a grip of, on the seriousness of Hazleton's injury. Obviously, the bye week helps out here. Hazleton, a guy who, you know, even last year when things looked bad at multiple times throughout, led the team in, you know, receptions, receiving yards, yards per reception, and receiving touchdowns. I mean, we you can't ignore that. Do you think that, I, I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy, right? Because you're adding the best player to the the biggest strength of the team. Do you think Hazleton will be able to make an impact to enough of an extent that maybe this ship could be righted, hopefully combined with the uh, return of Jackson and Zachariah Hoyt? 
he's an all-ACC receiver, so yeah, I mean, I think he's going to make a significant difference if he's healthy and back in the lineup. Now, you know, Justin Fuente said, you know, after week one, he was like, look, I expect him back in week two against Old Dominion, and then he admitted this past week of being a little bit more optimistic about that and said maybe he made a mistake in making that declaration, but... You know, I think Justin Fuente knows that they need Damon Hazleton back, and they're optimistic that he's able to get back in the lineup and be a difference maker. Um, he's a guy who was very good throughout most of last season. You know, fell off a little bit at the end of the year, but then again, um, you consider the injuries that he was dealing with back half of last season. I guess it's no no surprise really that you know he had his fair share of struggles on the field in the last quarter of the season or so. But Damon Hazleton's a good receiver. I think anytime you add a playmaker to your starting offense, I think it's going to be significant. So I think Damon Hazleton is a guy who can step in and make a difference. Do I think it's more significant than maybe an offensive lineman or two returning to the fold with some experience? No, not necessarily, because I think the receivers overall have done a pretty good job in, in Damon Hazleton's absence. But I think anytime you add a guy as talented as he is back to the starting lineup, I think it does make a difference. I think it can only help the Hokies offense. Ricky, if I told you Hazleton would be starting at full strength against Duke, would that inspire more confidence in you? Not particularly. Uh, I mean, I, I think he'll he'll make the offense marginally better. But I, that, well, like Mike said, the, the problem with this offense is not the receiving core. The, the, the problem with this offense is that Ryan Willis has struggled through three games. And the offensive line has struggled to, to put really many holes on the ground for running backs to go through. And Keyshawn King finally got things going in game three, and then he got a little banged up. So Tech has to see if, if he's going to be okay. But um, no, I, I, Hazleton will make an impact. He's a great player. Uh, he's a very good athlete. He's great on those 50-50 balls, especially in the red zone. Uh, he's a physical guy. He, he generally has good hands. Um, and he's just going to give Ryan Willis another weapon. But, I mean, the, the play that we've gotten out of guys like Caleb Smith or Tavion Robinson, guys that are seeing the field instead, have they've done pretty well. And that play, that level of play is not going to go that much higher when Hazleton gets on the field. So uh, Hazleton's return will not be a cure-all for this offense. And I, I think if Tech's going to turn this thing around, and maybe we can use this as a bit of a segue to the defensive side, but I think Ryan Willis has got to play better. It's just straight up, he's got to play better. Uh, the offensive line has got to get things going, and the running game has got to get going consistently. And three, uh, the pass rush has really got to get better. And I think we saw a bit of that in the Furman game, especially someone like Emmanuel Belmar, who is going to be Tech's really lone experienced defensive end at this point. Uh, I think the pass rush has got to ramp it up. And, and like I said, I think that they got better in the Furman game, uh, but they've got to continue to do that against higher levels of competition. Yeah, Mike, uh, segueing to the defensive side, like Ricky said, uh, the pass rush did look better, and that was apparent, obviously. It's got to be taken with a little asterisk. You were playing an FCS team. Does the performance from the defensive line inspire more confidence for you going forward into ACC play? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for the first time all season, the Virginia Tech pass rush looked pretty good. I don't really care if it's an FCS opponent or not. The fact that it looked competent for the first time all year was was significant to me. Didn't look very good against Boston College. Didn't look all that great against Old Dominion. It finally looked okay against Furman. I mean, it's a step in the right direction. Um, now, whether or not that continues into ACC play is another thing. I mean, I think, obviously, Virginia Tech needs that pass rush to be kind of the strength of the defense in order for the Hokies to reach their ceiling on that side of the football. 
I think for as well as the defense has played this year, I think they've done it in spite of having a horrible pass rush through three games. Uh, so having that be a little bit better on Saturday, I think is significant because I thought the defense overall played pretty well. I thought the secondary played pretty well for the most part. I think the linebackers, especially Jax Hollifield, took a step forward on Saturday. Uh, he got run over in the first half, but I think he adapted well after that. Um, I thought overall, from a tackling standpoint, he certainly improved from games one and two when he definitely struggled. So I think overall, the whole defense, uh, you know, in that game against Furman on Saturday played much, much better than they had through the first two games. And, you know, I think the Hokies establishing a pass rush with Emmanuel Belmar. Hopefully they get Taiwan Garbutt back on the other side of the defensive line. I think that would be pretty significant, obviously. But Foster mentioned it as much in the in the uh, post-game press conference where he said, hey, the pass rush was pretty good today against Furman, but we could really use a guy like Taiwan Garbutt back. He's emerged as a leader on the defensive side of the football. We could really use him on the defensive line. But I think the defensive line establishing a whole other level of – of consistency in the, in the pass rush, I think would take this defense to another level. Yeah. And, and that's something that is really curious to me, right? Because for all that this offense is at the end of the day, you know, minus Chung, minus uh, Yosawi, I can't even pronounce his Yash, last name. Yasuo Nijman. Nah, Yasuo Nijman. Or Yash, as there people like go. to say. Or yeah, as people <laughs> like to call. You don't lose that many key pieces from last year's offense. And, and last year's offense, we saw at times, despite all the woes on the defensive side of the ball, we're able to get it together. At times, right? But you expect improvement. We have not seen that improvement. But it does leave a little hope in my heart that maybe at full strength, maybe when if you can get some of these injured offensive linemen back in, insert Damon back in, that the offense could be pretty close to what we expected. So on the defensive side of the ball, I think that's what's got to give you hope. I really like the way Caleb Farley's playing. He has looked like a more than competent corner out there, taking into consideration the level of competition, but he, he has been a hawk out there. He's been defending passes. He looks like a serious upgrade over Bryce Watts. Chamari Connor brings a level of physicality to that whip position that I do really like. And, and it was something that it almost looked like the people who were switching in and out of that whip position last year looked like fish out of water at times. So defensively, I think it comes down to this defensive line. And you, and you mentioned Taiwan Garbutt. You want to get him back, but – Deshaun Crawford had a good game, uh, and, and maybe I come out of this a little more confident in the defensive line than I was before. Not much. They're going to have to improve on the fly, but, you know, it, kind of the same with the offensive group. You see guys who you're running a bunch of redshirt freshmen, true freshmen and sophomores out there on your on your fronts, and you when they do something well, you, you're like, it gives you hope for the future, but... At the same time, you got to think that the future is not going to come that fast. Mike, what do you think? No, yeah, I mean, I agree. And, you know, Virginia Tech, I think on the interior defensive line, it's been much better than they have at defensive end. You know, with Garbutt being out the last couple of games, I mean, that's pretty significant. Um, Belmar playing well on Saturday was a nice – um, was a nice addition, as Ricky mentioned. I think having him play as well as he did was significant. 
Um, I, I think the back end of the secondary continues to improve. Shamari Connor obviously had an outstanding game on Saturday. He was the best defensive player on the field for Virginia Tech throughout. At linebacker, you know, Dax Hollyfield hadn't been great, but he played much better, especially in the second half on Saturday against Furman. Rayshard Ashby had a relatively quiet game by his standards, but he's been really solid throughout the entirety of the season for Virginia Tech. And, you know, it, it, you know, Caleb Farley, like you mentioned, has been very good. So, you know, when you couple all that together, it really comes down to whether or not the pass rush is going to be very good on a consistent basis. And Justin Fuente mentioned that they get young really fast if they have injuries on either side of the football on the line specifically. And, you know, in the defensive line, not having garb at the last couple of games certainly doesn't help things. But I think it's good that Virginia Tech was able to establish the pass rush even without him there on Saturday. So I think the Hokies are taking strides in the right direction on the defensive side of the football. And I think adding a, a more consistent, competent pass rush can only help. All right. For the both of you, let's circle back to where we were three weeks ago, you know, before the season started. I want you to tell me whether your expectations for the offense have risen or lowered or stayed the same and the same with the defense. And I want to tell you, I want you to tell me specifically why that change occurred. Ricky, you go first. Offensively, my expectations have definitely lowered. Uh, Ryan Willis does not look like the same quarterback from last year. Um, and I think that's kind of the primary driving factor, that and the offensive line uh, is just simply not ready, it seems like, uh, for, for primetime football. So I think the offense, you have to, to, to bring them down a bit and realize that they're kind of limited. Um, and even though that doesn't justify it, it doesn't make anything better. We just have to expect a bit less from them going forward. And I think defensively, I think we've probably seen, or I think the expectations are kind of stayed the same. I mean, they're the, the unit's inconsistent. Uh, they're, they're not going to make a ton of plays. Um, Caleb Farley has been a bit better than I expected him to be. And that certainly helped, but, uh, Dax Hollyfield seems to have regressed slightly, uh, but we'll see if maybe he's able to to kind of build off of uh, at least a better performance against Furman. Uh, but the, the the pass rush has been non-existent prior to the Furman game, and even against Furman, it uh, doesn't mean a whole lot. Jared Hewitt has not progressed like I thought he would, so it's kind of a mixed bag on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, so I think the offense is trending down right now, and the defense is kind of treading water. Mike? Yeah, I mean, the offense is certainly trending, uh, trending down. You know, Ryan Willis hasn't been as good, and the offensive line has been the biggest issue, in my opinion. Um, the offensive line being inconsistent isn't isn't great. Still can't run the ball consistently. Uh, Keyshawn King's been pretty good when he's been in. Um, you know, he was good against BC. He was decent against ODU. He was very, very good against Furman, but it's all about getting him carries, which... I don't trust Brad Cornelson to continue to get him the ball, believe it or not. I think it might be better moving forward if Jerry Kill, and we'll get into Jerry Kill higher here in a few minutes, but I think if Jerry Kill takes more of an ownership of the running game, maybe, you know, Keyshawn Kane becomes more of a focal point of the offense running the football. But, yeah, I think overall expectations on the offense haven't been met, so I'd say it's it's been lower. Um I think if they take care of the football, we can get back to where we were a year ago where the running game wasn't really all that good, but the passing game is about where it was. Um, defensively, I'm actually more optimistic than Ricky is. I think the secondary has been better. I agree with him. The pass rush hasn't been all that good, but it was much better this past weekend, even without Taiwan Garbutt. I will take that. 
into consideration. Um, Dax Hollyfield, like Ricky mentioned, has been very inconsistent, but there have been signs throughout the year that he's the same player as he was a year ago. I think he's experiencing some growing pains there. And, you know, I think Rayshard Ashby's been really, really good. Um, I can't really overlook that. I think he's been the best player on the defense all year long. And I think if the Hokies can establish any sort of semi-consistent pass rush, once again, I, I do think the defense will – uh, continue to make strides forward and at the very least they haven't folded up like a like a beach chair through three games like we saw in the second half a lot of times a year ago um, this was a defense that faced adversity and instead of looking it square in the face they rolled over we haven't really seen that this year out of the defense so I, I'm a bit more optimistic on that side of the ball than I have been out of the offense through three games yeah and I, I agree with facets of both of your points I think that you know, this offense, the offensive line, and perhaps at a fault to the fan base and many of the analysts, maybe expected too much of a one-year jump out of this offensive line. You really miss Brock Hoffman. You never had him, but you really miss him. But at the same time, as much as I'm sure we all generally believe that Hoffman should be playing, you can't really also rely on the NCAA to be granting your transfer waivers as a as a focal point of you know, the, the offensive attack that you're going to have. Now that compounded with the fact that Hoyt gets hurt and now you're suddenly running out a true freshman that you didn't want to have to play. You know, you don't want to burn that redshirt. That's a big thing. You don't want to have to. And maybe you still don't have to. The offense, I don't know. Maybe, maybe part of me is holding on to the idea that Damon comes back and maybe they've been holding back on the play calling and that because what we saw against Boston College, I didn't hate. I didn't hate what they were doing against Boston College. I hated the fact that Ryan was turning the ball over. But in a larger sample size last season, he didn't really turn the ball over all that much. I, I mean, at least not in the three turnovers turnovers per game against an ACC team. So the offenses, my expectations have gone down because I really expected them to make that next jump. I do believe that they can get back to at least where they were last year if they can get everything together. Keyshawn King, I like him, but my hesitations about his age, his size, and his ability at 185 pounds to hold up are, are concerning, right? Because as much of a burst as he had, you know, you get banged up after 12 carries, it, it's going to happen, right? And, and you don't, I don't know if you can give him the ball 40 times per game without worrying that that 40th carry is going to lead to no more carries for an extended period of time, just because of the way that the nature of this violent sport works. So for me, I, I don't really have a solution, but I'm really interested to see what they bring out against Duke. We're not going to talk about Duke too much because we're going to do that next week. Uh, defensively, the DBs have gotten better. I never really expected much out of the pass rush, and they've given me exactly what I expected. Not that much, except for a little bit against an SCS team. Dax needs to be able to make more open field tackles. I believe he can. He has in the past, but it's been underwhelming thus far, despite a little bit of an upturn against Furman. But granted, like we talked about, it's Furman. Overall, my expectations for the defense up, my expectations for the offense down. Uh, so let's talk about this Jerry Kill hire. Kill, uh, a guy who has coached at every level 
of college football. Starts in D2, has success there. Moves on to the FCS, Southern Illinois, where he led them to the you know, FCS playoffs, got a couple of wins there. Uh, takes over Northern Illinois, a quick turnaround, wins the division, goes to Minnesota. Not sustained success, but enough success to get in the 2014 Big Ten Coach of the Year. Health problems force him into retirement. Justin Fuente, after having him around this summer, has now brought him on a two-year contract worth, you know, nearly $200,000 per year to be a special assistant to the head coach. What do you guys, and you look online, right? And you've seen different writers, fans all across the board with different takes about what this adding of Jerry Kill to this staff means. Ricky, for you, what's Jerry Kill's role in this Virginia Tech program going to be? His role is going to help Justin Fuente get his shit together. And we can go ahead and beep that out. Um, Fuente has not done a very good job uh, this year uh, in terms of running the program and he's having misses on the recruiting trail. Uh, his teams look uninspired a lot of times and they're not playing hard. We don't see the special teams impact plays that we've seen in the past. Um, the defense looks like it doesn't have any swagger. The offense has regressed and that's supposed to be his part that he kind of is, is focused around his quarterback is struggling Jerry Kill's uh, here to help him get his stuff together, and I don't think that it's anything um, where Fuente was forced to bring him in uh, or that he's got Brad Cornelson on the hot seat. I think that all that's a bit cynical. It's certainly possible that uh, Cornelson is out of a job here in a few weeks, but I don't think that that's the intention. I think the intention is Justin Fuente knows Jerry Kill likes football. Jerry Kill wants to be around football. He's tried to leave the game multiple times. Uh, sometimes on his, not on his own accord, and he just keeps coming back because he's a football guy. Um, he trusts Jerry Kill mostly because he's got to know him through being in the um, in the Midwest when they were both in D2 football and because they know Gary Patterson very well. We know how Fuente and Gary Patterson are. Um, so I, Fuente has a lot of confidence in Jerry Kill, and I think he should. Uh, and I think that this is a, an excellent, excellent move. Um, I think Fuente realizes he needs some help. He's not going to be able to do this alone. Things aren't really going in the right direction at this point. Uh, and it can't hurt to bring a guy in with as much experience as Jerry Kill. And as Fuente noted, it's someone that is going to tell him if, if things are wrong. He's not just going to come in and be a yes man. He's going to come in and give an honest evaluation of the program from top to bottom. And I think that's exactly what Gene Tech needs at this point. Um, so anyone who is questioning the hire or or says it's all a conspiracy to have a guy in waiting in case Cornelson or Fuente get fired. I think that's really cynical. And I think tech fans need to give this a chance and, and give Justin Fuente credit when he deserves it. Fuente is admitting that he needs some help and that's totally fine. I mean, hell Nick Saban has 32,000 assistants in his program that he's paying a hundred thousand dollars a year. And those guys include major Apple white and some other guy that's had a head coaching experience. I mean, this is what the big programs do. They bring in these big names to give them help. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, no. And uh, Ricky, to your point there on Saban, just to look, I mean, and we have to think about things like this, right? Because we have people call into the radio show all the time and basically say, why isn't Virginia Tech Clemson? I'm like, well, I can give you a list of a million reasons, but number one, we'll just go with money. Virginia Tech can't afford to pay a bunch of dudes who used to make ex- head coaching money. What? You know, a school like Alabama can. If you look at Saban's staff, he's got Steve Sarkeesian, former uh, coach of 
UW as the uh, as a coach. Kyle Flood, former Rutgers coach. He's got Butch Jones, former Tennessee coach. And like you said, Major Applewhite. In the past, he's had Lane Kiffin and Mike Loxley. For Justin Fuente, he doesn't have a single guy on that staff right now. And that includes, despite all the experience, Bud Foster has never been a head coach. And he doesn't have anyone that can give the perspective of someone that's formerly run a program. What you have in Jerry Kill is a guy that's run a program at every level. He's clearly a football guy. And for those that think it's a PR move, I don't think that Kill would have given up his job as the athletic director at a Division I school to come be a figurehead type of, like, you know, Frank Beamer fundraising recruiting guy. But, Mike, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. No, I mean, I totally I totally agree with the take of both of you. Um, you know, Ricky, you brought up the point there that, you know, the – the fact that, you know, these big time programs that have been very successful have brought in coaches that have some pedigree and have some experience. You got to give credit to Justin Fuente when it's due. You know, you talk about Major Applewhite, you talk about Steve Sarkeesian, you talk about, you know, the types of coaches Alabama's had on their staffs throughout the years, the type of staff that Dabo Swinney has compiled at Clemson. You know, Virginia Tech is trying to aspire to have some consistency on that staff that, you know, add some value to the program year over year and has an opportunity to have an assistant to move on to a major head coaching job. Virginia Tech really hasn't had that um, under Justin Fuente. And I think the the one positive with this move, I think, for Jared Kill is that he's going to provide that voice in the room. As Ricky mentioned, he's not going to be a yes man. He's going to be a guy who comes in and he's able to assist Fuente. And I think that's huge. I think that's something that Virginia Tech needs. And Justin Fuente knows he needs some more accountability in the room um, from a coaching perspective. And, you know, the best coaches in college football have a great, great support staff, right? And we talk about Alabama, we talk about Clemson. I think Virginia Tech wants to aspire to be that. So I think when you hire a guy like Jerry Kill, I don't think it's a PR hire, but I also don't think that he's a head coach in waiting or the next offensive coordinator of Virginia Tech. I don't think any of that. I think if Virginia Tech's going to make a change from Brad Cornelson, I think it's going to happen at the end of the year. Um, I don't think they're moving on from Justin Fuente. His buyout is way too large. I think you'd have to get absolute chaos in the team that goes maybe like three and nine or four and eight in order for that to happen. Um, because there is just way too much money tied up in Justin Fuente uh, to afford to pay a buyout at this point in time. But if you have a record that's that bad, I think you do find the money somewhere. I think it definitely happens. But look, Jerry kills a good hire, and I, I don't think we should overshoot this. This is a situation where where Justin Fuente knows he needs help. The football program could use all the coaches they can get on staff to help assist and continue to move this thing in the right direction. And after you know, what happened a year ago and how the team has looked through three games here despite a winning record. I think that Jerry Kill is an excellent hire in whatever role he ends up occupying here on Justin Fuente's staff. Yeah, no, and I think both of you are exactly right. And you you look at the state of Justin Fuente's program and Justin, a guy who at age 43 just doesn't have all that much head coaching experience. And you have to look at it exactly like you guys are saying he's bringing in the best man of his mentor Gary Patterson a guy who is purely a football guy a guy who can you know we don't know how this year is going to end things could go really bad things could go mediocre maybe they exceed our expectations from this point but from here on you're going to have Jerry Kill, a guy who's run a number of 
football programs at the Division I level able to assess everything from game planning to practice, you know, coaching, so on and so forth. And if the time comes, because tough decisions are going to have to be made, and starting with the fact that we know we're getting a new defensive coordinator next year. So in that sense, the program's already changing directions. Brad Cornelson, obviously, kind of on the hot seat as well. He's going to be able to weigh in and, and give Justin advice that from a different perspective. So the worst thing that you want your football program to turn into, especially during a time of, you know, at at least moderate turmoil, you do not want to turn it into an echo chamber. And I think Jerry Kill prevents that. So as long as Fuente and the support staff and and the players are, are willing to at least listen to his advice, I think that that has to be a good thing. But at the same time, I do want to dispel the notion. I do not think Jerry Kill will ever be a coordinator for this team. You know, I, I think the the what's happened with his health, unfortunately, it is well documented. And you have to have him in more of an advisory position. I think that's what he wants. But I think that when the time comes to make those big decisions, if they have to be made, he, he's going to play a big part of that. Yeah. Last thing I want to talk well, Last hold, thing on. I hold on. I, okay, I, yeah, I have a few things. So number one, um, Alabama has 12 of these guys. Clemson has oh, at least 12, depending on how you sparse out the names in the names of their positions. They have at least 12 of these guys. So this is something that the big programs need to do. And I think it's a good, good thing there. Point number two, people that are questioning the timing of this. Oh, well, how come we didn't bring Jerry Kill in to start the season? Well, it's because Tech's two and one and they look like crap. That's the exact reason. Justin Fuente realizes he needs some help. That's totally fine. And I I, I don't understand why there are some people out there that are using the timing of this as as a reason to make it a questionable hire. Because I just just think that's inaccurate. Ricky, I I almost want to dispel your point there. Because just given that Kill was there all summer, I almost want to pin it on. it, It takes a long time to process someone through a public school's hiring system. That, that like, I mean, yeah, that, that's. I bet that's you that this was coming. Given the turmoil of last season, I bet you this was coming. I bet you he sat through summer practice. He gave his takes. Justin liked what he saw, and, and this was coming. Whether we were three, you know, they could have beaten Boston College by fourteen and killed these two teams, and I bet you we'd still be hearing about the Jerry Kill hire, just given the state of where things have been going in a general trajectory. I think, I think that's possible. Uh, but again, I don't want people to think that Justin Fuente is bringing a guy in in so that way in two weeks, he can be installed as a coordinator or in some official capacity. Cause some people are thinking that, and I think that they need to take a step back and realize that Justin Fuente is certainly not one to make rash decisions. Um, he's certainly not going to make these decisions quickly. It's he's someone that is going to be making these decisions later rather than faster uh, for better or for worse. So if tech fans need to take this higher for what it is. It's someone who is going to assist Justin Fuente in making program decisions and game decisions. And considering Jerry Kill's experience at multiple levels and his varying degrees of success, I think it's a good hire. You know, I, I completely agree. Last thing I want to get to before we do our, uh, our weekly picks, just I hate to overreact to the turmoil that we see online, right? I hate to react to the Twitterverse, but 
it exists, so we must. This is a Virginia Tech team that is minus 40 collectively on the season against the spread in three games. You're expected to beat Boston College. You got a four and a half spread. You lose by seven. You're favored by 28 against ODU. You only win by 14. You're favored by 21 and a half against Furman. You win by seven. When people are filing out of Lane Stadium at halftime of the Furman game at, at a game with the lowest attendance since 2015 with, you know, the equivalent of Jersey burning on Twitter, it raises the concern that obviously you've had your Fuente haters that were against him since I guess the ODU loss would have been that turning point for some. And then the debacle that followed bringing more on board. Now you see some people, the, the loss of confidence in the, relatively new head coaching regime at Virginia Tech seems to be trickling into a a more popular opinion. And that's a conversation as a whole that's hard to shut down without sustained success. I think that the three of us collectively can agree that a ACC championship or something, or no, you know, a, a division championship this year would be unlikely. What do you think has to happen in order for Fuente to, you know, patch the holes in the ship and be able to bring his program forward in a way that, and, and we and we saw it last year in its earliest stages, right? As bad as the tenor of this offseason was, the miracle win against UVA combined with the Marshall game, it, it, it threw a little bit of water on the fire that was happening. Expectations were raised, perhaps unfairly, on a still very young team. But what has to happen this year in order to give Justin some breathing room going into next year, especially in a year where he has to hire a defensive coordinator to Virginia Tech in a way that makes Virginia Tech still look like an appealing place to take on take on a coach because who wants to coach for a coach that's like, you know, who's going to jump on to be Willie Taggart's defensive coordinator, right? Not a don't single want Justin person. Yeah. So what is the minimum result of this season to keep – I'm not saying – we know it would have to be really bad to get Fuente actually fired. But what's the minimum to keep the, the uh, a sense of – I, I don't even know what word to look for. Somewhat stability in this program going into this ACC play because obviously the, the, the bigger mountains are left to climb. Yeah, I'll, Ricky, I'll take this one first. I, as far as the fan base is concerned, everybody leaving early and stuff like that. I mean, I think fans who have been around the Virginia Tech program for 30 or 40 years, you know, I think those people are going to continue to support the team. I think the students are pretty it's a pretty weak fan base from a student perspective at this point in time. Like, I don't know if any level of success at this point in time is really going to fix that to the degree that 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 would be needed to win that entire fan base back. Like, I think that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the students at this point, and I sat in the stands for the ODU game, and then I watched it last Saturday against Furman, um, Virginia Tech, you know, the fan base, you know, they're throwing paper airplanes in the first quarter. 
they're cheering more for the paper airplane making on the field than for the defense to make a stop. And, that, and that's on the students being totally and completely disinterested. Does the football program not being all that great play into that? Yeah, sure. But Virginia Tech would have to be a 9, 10, 11 win team again in order to win those types of students back. So if you're going to try to wage a war on the fan base in regards to the students, I think it's a losing battle just because of the millennial culture. So you can dial that up for me. Um, now, as far as your initial question, Andrew, about what would it take for Justin Fuente to win the fan base back? I think just to have a more consistent football team, regardless of record, would be a step in the right direction, right? This is a team that, you know, in all honesty, and we put this out there in the season preview, this is a team for Virginia Tech that could be relatively, you know, mediocre for the entirety of the season and still win eight or nine games. I think the fact that they haven't looked all that good with a two and one record through the first quarter of the season is not a very good sign. I think the Virginia tech plays more consistent football throughout the rest of the year, stops turning the football over, takes strides on defense, more importantly, takes strides on the offensive side of the football, which I'm surprised that I'm even saying at this point. Um, you know, I, I think Virginia Tech, even if they go eight and four, um, I think that the fan base would say, hey, look, at least they're playing more consistent football. They got a young team with a lot of potential. I think this could be a, a pretty good year going into 2020. Now, with that being said, if they continue to play inconsistent, inconsistently on both sides of the football throughout the rest of the season, and we're talking more of like a seven and five record and eight and four if they're lucky and six and six and likely missing a bowl game. Uh, depending on what games they lose here heading into heading throughout the rest of the season, then I think it's a different discussion. So I think Fuente needs to win eight or nine. And I think more importantly, the team needs to look more consistent and more coherent here moving forward, because it's been really, really uneven here through the first three games. Tech tech definitely, I think needs to get to the eight win mark in order for Justin Fuente to at least hold off the wolves a bit longer uh, and buy himself some more time. Again, like you mentioned, there's probably a less than 5% chance that Justin Fuente isn't the head coach after this season. Um, so he, he he's going to have the time, but in order to buy himself some more time after that point, he's got to probably win at least eight games this year. And if he does, I think that's a pretty damn impressive accomplishment. If he's able to get this team the way that they're playing to turn around, turn around and win eight games, I think that would be uh, very, very impressive. And I think the fans would have to enjoy that, but I think there's two main things that Justin Fuente needs to do uh, in order to kind of revive a bit of buzz and a bit of energy around this team. Number one, he needs to win at home, and he needs to win at home in, in good fashion. Um, they've they've obviously beaten ODU and Furman, but they're not impressing the home crowd. They're not giving them a good show, and unfortunately, um, not all fans are going to be the guys that show up to every game and that donate to the program or watch the games when they're on the road or travel to the road, fans are going to be fair-weather fans, and that's just how it is for every single fan base across the country, no matter what anyone tells you. Uh, Tech needs to be more impressive at home, and they need to win these home games, especially against ACC opponents, and they also need to recruit better. They need to hit on some of these four- and five-star guys that they've been targeting. They have to stop missing out on guys like Devin Ford or Ricky Slade or any guys like that. They have to start hitting on these people. They need more Quincy Pattersons. They need guys that are highly touted recruits, guys that they're beating out really good programs for, like they did for Doug Nestor in Ohio State. Uh, they have to do start doing more of that. So if Justin Fuente can start winning more games at home and winning in impressive fashion and, and not eking out these wins against bad teams, and if he can start hitting, I think, on the recruiting trail a bit more, 
I think he'll start to get the fan base back in his favor. I just don't know how much confidence I have that that's going to be happening this season. I think it's much more likely that it would happen next season. Yeah, no, and and, and for me, you know, and, and I completely agree with what you're saying about how, you know, every fan base is like Yeah, every single you one. Watch you watch highlights of North Carolina following their big upset win against South Carolina as they beat Miami at the final seconds and all the Carolina blue rises from the stands. And, and, and you can't help but remember that literally last year, nine months ago, yeah. that place was freaking empty. Yeah. That place was empty. You need excitement. And everyone, the, the, the criticism of Fuente, because we cannot forget that Justin had early success. He, had early, he was the ACC coach of the year in his first season as Virginia Tech's coach. And he coached a very good team, a team that honestly could have done a little bit better than they did, right? Because there was so much talent on both sides of the ball. You get that drop-off, that drop-off that's almost a pure product of a coaching change. And Justin's guys are, we talked about the youth last year, and, you know, freshmen and sophomores become juniors and seniors but we still we're still playing with freshmen and sophomores. Like it, it, it's a reality. It's going to take some time for this to develop. At the same time, with the tools that you do have, there is potential. Like to at least not lose the bull streak, right? <laughs> I, I think that if, if if he loses the bull streak and he loses to UVA this year, Fuente will lose almost all of his remaining support that he has amongst the fan base and the donors. I don't think we're at DEFCON 1 just yet, like I mentioned uh, in, on, my, on my blog this week, but we're, we're, we're headed in that direction. We're a bit far, far away, but we're headed in that direction. No, I, I mean, I completely agree. And uh, it's what creates this sense of urgency. Like, I think that – I think Virginia Tech fans holistically are a little spoiled sometimes. Oh, they, yeah. uh, the bull streak is a cool thing that we have, right? But, I mean, teams miss bowls sometimes. <laughs> like, like Gary Patterson, the mentor of our esteemed head coach, has had a couple of bad seasons. He's, he's won four games, even since that change to the, the Big 12. That, that was not a smooth transition. He ultimately turned it around. He's finished multiple times in the top 10, multiple times. One season, I believe they thought they should have won the national championship or something, or they thought they should have had a chance at it. Regardless, you gotta. If this team, I think I'm moving towards the thought of, for me, if they can get to that eight win mark, that nine win mark, if we're including a bowl game, that's almost to the coaching staff's credit, given what they have, which would hopefully set up a big year next year where even though the hot seat talk might still be there, he would have the potential to really prove himself when you have an offensive line now filled with redshirt juniors, juniors, and sophomores rather than what we have now when you have an improved pass rush when the core of your wide receiver group is still there where you have Dax as a junior, so on and so forth. You know, we're talking about a team that if the ship can hold true would bring back all but like what four guys on the two deep, but you got to make sure that the tip doesn't sink right now. And that starts with Duke, a team that is in their turnover period right now. They are 
or at least going into the season, people thought they would be in the position where Virginia Tech is right now, losing most of your offensive weapons and a quarterback in Daniel Jones, who was a top 10 pick in the draft, who will be starting for the New York Giants in Tampa Bay this Sunday. As Mike shakes his head. (laughs) It starts with that. It starts with that. So for Justin, it's time to prove the offensive guru that you are, you know, coach with less, right? Sometimes you got to do that. We're in a better spot, or we should be in a better spot on paper than we were last year. You can't completely blame him for what happened last year. If it goes under this year, there's going to be a lot of questions raised. And it's on him and his coaching staff and the players, especially the older guys in that Virginia Tech locker room who might not be the most talented because, you know, we're talking about guys like Tavion Robinson, Keyshawn King, true freshmen as some of the vitriol parts of this team right now, as the best parts of this team right now. Those guys will get better. It's the job of the older guys, and it starts with Ryan Willis to elevate that group. But now uh, one last thought, and we'll, we'll go to a funnier note. What do you guys think about, like, the orange stuff that they bring out during Understand Man? Yeah, yeah, terrible. I, I don't get it. You have something that works. Why try and add stuff to it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I exactly agree. All right. Two, <laughs> yeah, I mean, eight, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. To our ACC picks we go. We will start in, oh, one of my favorite college football, the birthplace of college football, Piscataway, New Jersey. Get the hell out of here. Highpoint.com Stadium. <laughs> oh, two man. And one. Mike is, Mike with, is heated. With a, little Kansas asterisk on it, with a little Kansas asterisk on it, two and one Boston College. They did beat Virginia Tech, big-time program, right? <laughs> Boston College has director <laughs> as a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. Rutgers, one and one on the year. Guys, it'd be pretty bad if Boston College had back-to-back losses of Kansas and Rutgers. Will they cover this seven-and-a-half point spread on the road? Yes. Don't overthink it. Boston College bounces back here. Defense hasn't been great, but I got good news for Boston College. Rutgers' offense sucks, so this is a good bounce-back week. I like BC on the road here to cover (laughs) seven-and-a-half. Ricky! Yeah, I'll take Boston College. Kansas is definitely going to be a wake-up point. Or, uh, and also, I think it's going to be – look, Steve Adazio has got to get the seven wins somehow. He does it every year, so this is going to be the game that he does it. All right. We head to the Carrier Dome where Syracuse – Hey, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. What's your pick in that game? Oh, yeah, I'll go Boston College. Despite my Jersey roots, man, I could never – fun fact. Here's a fun fact. One time I went – uh, when I was in college, I went to visit a friend of mine who went to Rutgers. It was like my best friend's girlfriend. And I was I was home for fall break. And she took me to tailgate for the Rutgers game. And it was such a poor atmosphere that I said, let's get on the train and go to this horse race like an hour and a half away. 
And the worst thing that happened at that, I mean, the horse race was great. You know, it was one of those like Carolina cup, gold cup style things. It's called the hunt. It's up in New Jersey. Great time. We had so glad we didn't go to the Rutgers game. The worst part was getting on the train to go home. I am drunk, right? And I'm, I'm sitting on the train and I say, someone give me the score. It's 2016, by the way. So I'm like, someone give me the score of the Syracuse-Virginia Tech game. And they're like, yeah, Syracuse won. And I was wearing Virginia Tech stuff. I'm like, don't screw with me. And they're like, no, Syracuse actually won. Syracuse didn't beat Virginia Tech that day. They would have gone to a BCS Bowl when Clemson got into the college football playoffs. So still salty. Still extremely salty about that. I'll take Boston College. but. I will say, uh, less, either Les Miles in Kansas figured something out, it's a college football anomaly, or that Boston College defense is really bad, which I know that we can't regard the transitive property too seriously, but that would be something I would worry about a little bit if the Boston College defense was that bad. All right, moving forward, Carrier Dome, where, where Syracuse is the home team. Western Michigan comes to town, and Syracuse, speaking of how the mighty have fallen in this conference that has turned out to look a lot more pathetic than we thought. Listen to the basketball conference podcast for full analysis on that. Uh, Syracuse only six point favorites at home. You think the orange can cover guys? Mike, you go first. Yeah. Syracuse is actually trash. They're no longer low key trash. They're actually trash. Your defense <laughs> The offense hasn't looked very good. Tommy DeVito's been pretty underwhelming, and Syracuse can't run the football. So if you want to find a team on the Atlantic side that's as disappointing as Virginia Tech, look no further than their their friends up there at Syracuse. Um, the Orange are not very good. Lucky for them, Western Michigan sucks too. So I like Syracuse here at home. I think <laughs> Ricky. Man, only if Mike was more honest about the Hokies. I feel like he's a bit too bullish. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with Syracuse. Syracuse is going to be the more talented team. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Hughes. Yeah, I mean, it's very confusing, right? Very confusing to me. I will say that Syracuse really upped the Josh Jackson for Heisman talk and Temple shut that down real quick, holding him to five, 15 for 38, 183 yards. Yep. One for every miles. single Tech fan in my mentions of talking about Josh Jackson, just go away. Just oh, yeah. They get, go they get real, real fast. I go had so We got a guy on the radio show who went to Maryland, and I'm like, so what happened? He's like, we took your Virginia Tech quarterback. I'm like, interesting facts. Here, we want him back. <laughs> so, Or at least that's what people are saying. I'll take Cuse. Hopefully they're not as bad as their previous performance suggests. Um, now forward, we can't. We don't have a line on Elon Lake Forest. We'll just say Mike took. Oh, Lake Forest. time out! Time out! That's that. Oh. Time out now. That Mike, is you can't just call time out on the pod whenever you want. Hey, if it's about Lake Forest, he feels the right. Way. That's one of the. That's one of the best teams in the ACC. Wake Forest. They're going to be a top twenty-five team after this week. We're talking about four and zero. Okay, Wake okay nobody yeah. cares. The ACC thinks this year. Nobody cares. I will say, I will say, that for three weeks, Mike's Wake Forest take is looking okay. It's looking good. <laughs> hey, the, the Wake Forest defense is still very, very questionable. But I, I, I'm riding with the offense. Jamie Newman has been the second best quarterback in the ACC so far behind Trevor Lawrence. And that's not an exaggeration. Look at the statistics. He's been very good. So you put him in above Bryce Perkins? Yeah, I am. I, Newman's been better. 
can actually make you can actually make an ar- argument based on statistics so far. Jamie Newman has even been better than Trevor Lawrence, but well, he's Trevor Lawrence throwing too many picks as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, uh, you know, Bryce Burgess has thrown some questionable interceptions. Trevor Lawrence has thrown some questionable interceptions. Jamie Newman just doesn't turn the football over. He's been really good, so you can make an argument. Jamie Newman's been the best quarterback in the conference for three weeks. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah, um, I, w- I will say the consensus one, two, three of. Yeah, uh, Trevor Lawrence, Bryce Perkins, and Ryan Willis. That's a lot of interceptions for the uh, the best three going in. Okay, uh, UCF, the internet's favorite football team, heads to Heinz Field in Pittsburgh to take on a Pitt Panthers team that's been reeling but somehow hung in there with Penn State. UCF, a twelve and a half point favorite on the road. Do any of you guys think Pittsburgh has a chance to pull the upset? Nope, UCF. And with the spread, too? And with the spread. That's a lot of points to cover on the road. I just watched what UCF did to Stanford. Stanford might not be all that good, to be honest with you. Um, Pittsburgh actually hung with Penn State a little bit better than I expected him to. Kenny Pickett has actually looked pretty good the last couple of weeks, thrown for over 300 yards in back-to-back games. But their running game, ooh, baby. They had more rushes than rushing yards last Saturday <laughs> against Penn State. They had 25 carries for 24 yards. That is not going to get the job done, and UCF can put up a lot of points. I'm taking the Knights here on the road to cover 12.5, which is a huge line in a road game. But I like the Knights. Ricky, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a lot, um, but good teams cover, so I'll, I'll go with UCF. Uh, like you said, we're not really sure how good Stanford is, but uh, anytime you whip a program that has the players that Stanford has like that, uh, I think you're pretty good. Yeah, I will agree with you guys. UCF is in my book of teams where I will believe in them until I am proven otherwise, and for the better part of the last two years, they have – not proven otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah, I will take a UCF team over a pit team that uh, has been pedestrian, to say the least. Now we turn to the state of North Carolina, where Appalachian State visits the Tar Heels. 3.30 start. Uh, UNC, only a three-point favorite on the road versus undefeated Appalachian State. They have taken care of Eastern Tennessee State University, a 42-7 score, and UNC Charlotte, 56-41, a high score. The Tar Heels, they fall last week to uh, Wake Forest after a couple of impressive wins. I think this spreads a little low. What do you guys think? I think this is actually going to be one of the best games of the weekend. I think App State has a legitimate opportunity to win this game on the road. I'm going to take UNC to win. I think they cover three, but I think App State keeps it within a touchdown. I would not be surprised if App State wins this game outright. I think this is going to be one of the better games of the weekend. Ricky? Well, you know, UNC ran into that powerhouse Wake Forest team. They're just so good, uh, which is the only reason they've lost the game. So uh, I'm going to – Don't forget – Andrew, can you mute him? I don't want to hear any more from him for the rest I of the wish, pod. Uh, no, seriously, I, I'm going to go with UNC. Um, I think Sam Howell just needs to grow up a bit. We saw in the first half he wasn't very good. Uh, I think he'll grow up a bit after that game, and he'll, they'll be able to cover that spread. Uh, I think they will definitely cover the spread. Uh, I think Sam Howell is very, very good for a freshman quarterback. I do believe that, I mean, you look at, a South Carolina team that's clearly reeling a little bit, a Miami team that 
as good as I believe Jaron has been, has its flaws, almost in the same way that Tech does with a very, very young offensive line. Uh, they obviously fall to Wake. I think they should be able to handle App State. Once they get through Clemson and Georgia Tech and they reach a streak of, uh, you know, mediocrity in Virginia Tech, Duke, UVA, and Pitt, there will be some more losses on the schedule for them once we get more tape on the freshman howl. But I, I believe that App State will not cover that, that three-point spread. But, you know, at, at, with this ACC, who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, really, this conference is absolutely bonkers right now. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Florida State hosts Louisville. Wow, talk about the fall from Grace Bowl. Uh, <laughs> Florida, Florida State is six-and-a-half-point favorite at home. Uh, Louisville, two-and-one. They have defeated Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky, lost to Notre Dame, but they covered the spread in that one. Uh, Florida State, they hung in there with UVA for a minute, uh, barely beat Louisiana Monroe, and completely collapsed against Boise State. In the battle of new coach with a little bit of promise for Louisville versus hot seat central with Willie Taggart and Florida State, do you think the, the Seminoles can cover the six and a half point spread at home? College game day was at this game just three years ago, Lamar Jackson's Heisman Trophy year, when he promptly put the entire city of Tallahassee in its place and just exploded in a 70 point effort uh, for Louisville there. Um, I like the Cardinals straight up here on Saturday. Florida State has not played well for four quarters across the entire game yet this season. Um, They've showed glimpses against UL Monroe. They showed glimpses against Boise State in the first half. They obviously looked very good throughout parts of the game last Saturday against UVA on the road, but they have yet to put it together for all four quarters. Meanwhile, Louisville, despite a 2-1 and one record, has looked good in every single game they've played for the entirety of the four quarters. They got overpowered against Notre Dame in the opener. Notre Dame's just a better team, a different program at this point in time, but Louisville's a team that has played hard and has played well throughout four quarters. I think they have a better coach right now in Scott Satterfield. I think they go into Tallahassee and upset Florida State. I like Louisville here. Ricky... Yeah, uh, I'm actually kind of torn on this because I felt like Florida State figured a bit out against Virginia. Uh, but I also don't think Virginia is very good after what I saw in that game against Florida State at home. Um, I'm going to go with Louisville to at least with the points. I don't know if they'll win it straight up, but they definitely held their own against Notre Dame for most of that game. Um, and something's just wrong in Tallahassee, man. Something is not right. I don't think anyone knows what it is, but it all falls on Willie Taggart. So I'm going to go with Louisville with the points. Yeah, and it really is an interesting one, right? Because you you look at the perspective, you can look at it in two ways, right? A decent Boise State team, a supposedly decent UVA team, Florida State hangs in there. Meanwhile, they play down to their competition with Louisiana Monroe. I don't know how much faith I have in Louisville. I'm not really confident in the six-and-a-half-point spread, but I will take it, and I will take the Seminoles. My more confident pick is the Seminoles straight up. Just because, I've said it before, this kid Cam Akers, man, he, he's the bright spot on a otherwise debacle of a football team. But I think that at home – with a lot on the line. I mean, you can't look, if they lose this week, Willie Taggart may be gone by the time we record our next podcast, right? So I think that they'll be able to hold on for this one. Florida State wins and covers. 
All right, going now, the Chippewas of Central Michigan. Antonio Brown's alma mater visit Antonio Brown's home region, Miami, Florida, where they will take on one and two Miami. Miami has, you know, they, they won last week against the Bethune-Cookman program that obviously they were going to smoke 0-2 on the year. They have lost Florida. They have lost to the Heels. Uh, the Canes are 30.5-point favorites at home, tickets as low as $6. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think is going to happen in this game? you think the Canes can cover that 30 points, Brent? I do, yeah. Central Michigan isn't very good, and Miami, I think, has found something with Jaron Williams. Despite losing in North Carolina a couple weeks ago, I, I do like Miami's team a lot. I think they're, in my opinion, they're the best team in the Coastal still. Um, I'm taking the Hurricanes to win here and cover. Um, I, I think they win this game relatively easily here against Central Michigan. That's a huge spread, too, but I am confident they'll cover it. Ricky? They will not cover the spread because Khalil Pimpleton is going to have two touchdowns in this game. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I believe that, uh, like what you're saying is correct insofar as I like what Miami has in Jaron Williams. What has been the problem with the Canes in the past few years? That's been interceptions and through a few games against pretty stout competition. Jaron Williams, six touchdowns, no interceptions, 777 yards in the air. I believe they can take care of Central Michigan at home. Now, the possibility for revenge in our next game. Not revenge directly, but if ODU could pull something off as they visit UVA at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville, it would it would be give us everyone a good laugh, right? UVA 30-point favorites at home. Mike, can the Who's cover 30 points? No. I mean, that's <laughs> – so in that in that last game we just talked about, Miami is far superior athletically to Central Michigan. They got a ton of receivers on the outside. The Central Michigan just can't cover. Virginia's got some athletes, but they don't have the athletes like Miami does. And I think Old Dominion is a better team than Central Michigan uh, because of that. I do think Old Dominion covers. I, with that being said, Virginia wins this game going away. I, I think it's anywhere between like twenty one and like twenty four points. I uh, could get even up to 28 points, but I do think that Virginia covers. I think, or I'm sorry, I think Virginia wins. I think Old Dominion covers, but 30 points is a ton against an Old Dominion team that I don't think is really that far off, athletically speaking, to the team that they're playing there in Charlottesville on the road. So I'll take ODU to cover, but Virginia to win comfortably here. Ricky, what do you think? Uh, same, uh, ODU will cover UVA will win and a bonus prediction. They will storm the field once again, uh, after being favorites in a game and winning the game. <laughs> oh, good God. Hold on. Yeah, hold on. No, Can we I talk actually... about this real quick? The fact that they stormed the field. How yeah. pathetic is that? Honestly, like, I know this is a tech podcast. All three of us graduates, but what the hell is that? How, how can you live with yourself? storming the field, beating a team that's on the verge of firing their head coach, and you were favored to win the game? Uh, well, you know, I would normally say, act like you've been there before. UV has not been there, at least not recently. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. you can get to make it happen. <laughs> it, it, but I, I think the college football IQ 
over there in Charlottesville might be a little low because that's a team that is literally a dumpster fire. <laughs> but, I mean, admittedly so. When Tech beat Florida State at home or on the road last year, I was uh, celebrating as if we were going to win the national championship, despite every year. It's always like Florida State's going to turn it around. Didn't happen last year, but at least we were the first game, so we didn't know that we weren't good. They were just really bad. Yeah, we were. We had the benefit of ignorance. Yes, we had the benefit of ignorance. They had the intelligence of knowing that Louisiana Monroe was about this close to beating them. So, yeah, pretty sad. But at least, you know, people show up at Scott Stadium. I guess that's good for college football. But uh, never, uh, as a rule, never storm the field for a game where you're a touchdown favorite, just generally speaking. All right. Moving forward, but uh, by the way, I will take uh, I'll take go to you as well. I think that uh, I usually I said pick UVA until they prove me otherwise, but their running game is a little concerning. Granted that Bryce Perkins with only 158 yards of their leading rusher, and uh, his touchdown to interception ratio makes Ryan Willis look like kind of a stud. So, <laughs> moving forward though to our last, that's a third. But I, I do agree with Mike insofar as I do believe that. It'll be a uh, pretty handy win over ODU. They'll probably look more comfortable than Tech did against the same team. All right, NC State. We all kind of agreed that they were going to go to West Virginia and kick some A. They did not. They got killed. Now, a 19-point favorite at home against Ball State, a 1-2 and two Ball State team that has only beaten Fordham, a 10-point loss to FAU at home, 10-point loss to Indiana at home. They're getting a lot of home games here, three in a row to start the season. Can NC State right the ship and blow out Damon Hazleton's former team, the Ball State Cardinals? Yeah, we talked about Boston College bouncing back uh, after that loss to Kansas this week. I'd like NC State to bounce back here against Ball State. I think they went in cover here. It was a tough loss for NC State, not a really good look um, after how they played against West Virginia, but I like NC State to win here. and and cover and get back into it. Yeah, NC State, look, they they should have beaten West Virginia. I don't know what the hell happened. Uh, Ball State's not very good, though, so we'll go ahead and take NC State with the points uh, with that game being at home, although uh, fans should be a bit concerned about Dave Doran so far. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was a West Virginia, and I hate to bring in the transitive property, right? But that's in uh, – <laughs> Missouri gets killed by Wyoming. And then they kill West Virginia, who then kills NC State. I don't know what to say about it. I'll take Ball State to cover. Not to win, but to cover. We'll mix things up a little bit here. Last one for the evening. This one should be fun. A 41-point favorite at home are the Clemson Tigers versus the their neighbors from a state up north, the Charlotte 49ers. 41 and a half points for Trevor Lawrence, who has at five touchdowns, five interceptions. I mean, for sunshine, for the truth, for the next big guy coming out of college football has not lived up to expectations early on in these early games for the Clemson Tigers. Can the Tigers cover 41 and a half points at home against Charlotte? Good teams win, great teams cover. Clemson by a ton, seven touchdowns even. This is 
Charlotte might not score here. I, I like Clemson huge in this football game. Ricky. Yeah. Um, Trevor Lawrence has been shaky so far to start. I think that that's definitely fair to say, and I think we'd all agree, but uh, Charlotte is still Charlotte. Um, they're probably not going to do much in this game. Uh, and actually, I, I, eventually Clemson has to bust out of their shell and eventually Clemson's got to get it done. So I'll go with Clemson to cover the spread. And I think this will be the game where they start to do what we're accustomed to see them do. All righty. I will take Clemson to cover because I pick against good teams like Alabama against Duke, and I'm consistently wrong. So based on what Clemson's done so far, they have handled who they have played. I know nothing about the Charlotte 49ers other than the fact that they're not Clemson, and they are about 120 teams below them overall in the FBS. So I will go with the Clemson Tigers, and that will wrap up our podcast. This is the Hokie Hangover Podcast. If you are enjoying what you are listening to, first of all, make sure to subscribe. If you have friends, you go to the office, you're bored, you're in that cubicle, you have nothing else to talk about with the guy sitting next to you who also went to Virginia Tech, tell him to listen to the Hokie Hangover Podcast. It will be worth it. You can both enjoy your day a little bit more. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hokie Hangover. You can follow Ricky, at Ricky LeBlue. You can follow Mike at Mike McDaniel CFB. You can follow me at Andrew Alex Radio. We will be back next week with some kind of hybrid podcast where we'll preview Duke and just talk about varying questions coming up with the Virginia Tech program. So stay tuned for that. But for now, thank you for listening. We enjoy every single person coming on and listening to this dog and pony show that we put on between 1130 and 130 in the morning. Until then, I am Andrew Alex. And go hokies.